You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, sweetie. Um, We don't have a whole lot of time this morning. Our passage is rich, so we're going to be in Luke 16. Go ahead and get your Bibles, if you will, and turn there. We got a lot to cover. I tell you, uh, we could have split this up to a couple weeks, but we're going to get it all in today. Um, We're not going to spend any time reciting our monthly memory verse, but hopefully you're still doing that with your family. It's Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, so I encourage you to be memorizing that together as a family. And so we're going to be jumping back in today in Luke 16. Our main passage that we're going to be looking at today is going to be Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, but before we get there, let's do some recap, get our context. It's important for us uh, in terms of gathering the information or understanding the main point of these passages to put ourselves in what the listener at that time would be hearing and be understanding. So it's important for us to stay close to and in the scripture and what is happening in context in this time and who Jesus is speaking to in order for us to understand rightly what he's trying to say to us as listeners now. If you remember back in Luke 16 verses 1 through 19, we see there a couple things are going on. Uh, first, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and what he was speaking to his disciples was just warning them about the love of money. And he was helping them see that you can't serve two masters there in, in uh, verse 13. You can only be dis- devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Well, upon hearing this, the Pharisees became very angry or Um, they ridiculed him. And we see here that because they were lovers of money, the Pharisees were becoming more and more contentious at this time. This is about two months away from Jesus going to the cross. And as his ministry is working its way towards there, he's becoming more uh, pointed. Uh, Not that he wasn't before, but continually drawing out truths and exposing the truth. And the Pharisees were becoming more and more contentious, more and more bold in their in their anger more and more uh, to the place where they would openly ridicule him. And we know that this is leading towards the day when they would crucify him. And so why, why did they become so angry at this time? Well, the Pharisees, they had become approved by the people. They were appearing to be approved. Uh, and they, and to the people, they had favor with God according to the people, because of their position and their wealth and the, their religious position in the, in the community. And here Jesus is calling those things out. They were very outwardly religious, and yet they were condemned. Now, the truth here is divisive. Truth is always divisive. Many of us, you know, we would hear that and say that that shouldn't be right. Many of us, even today, as we uh, hear the Word of God or even hear it preached, we We want it to be more palatable. We want it to be more all-inclusive. But that's actually not loving. The truth is divisive because 
it's pointing us to the way to freedom. And when we um, share the truth rightly, it should divide. It should divide between what is wrong and what is right. And it should leave the listener with one choice, to either repent and believe or be condemned and turn away. There is no gray areas. There are no ways to the Lord that are different than what's true in Scripture. And so Jesus here, even though today our passage is going to be one of the most somber and maybe the hardest one to hear, Jesus is given these truths in order to show love. He's speaking the truth in love. He, he's rebuking the Pharisees harshly in front of the people, not because he wants to be harsh, but because he's trying to lead everyone to the truth so that they may know him and may be able to believe in God. And he goes on to speak to them in 14 through 18, where he calls them out. He calls them out for being lovers of money. He calls them out for being opposed to the truth. He calls them out for being justifi- justifying themselves before men based on religious standards. And they were an abomination in God's sight due to twisting the law and to facilitate their own desires. And to make this point even clearer, Jesus uses a parable today that we will look at today. In order to understand this passage rightly, we have to understand, as the audience did, as we said, that he's speaking directly to the Pharisees in this passage today. And he's making this point clear through this parable. See, para means to lay alongside. And so it is a story laid alongside a truth to demonstrate the reality of a truth. That's what a parable is. We need to understand this is a parable because some of the things that are said today in this, in this parable are not literal. We don't take every instance here literally, and, and many over the centuries have and tried to claim this one not to be a parable and making some assertions about eternal life and, and different things. Uh, those who we see here in, in Catholicism where they would look at Abraham's side and they would use this as a means to even uh, be able to talk about an idea of purgatory or something of, those, of that nature, and that's not what Jesus is saying here. To understand it rightly, we have to understand it as a parable. The reason why over the centuries this has been debated is because in this parable, uh, for the first time and the only time in a parable, Jesus names one of the characters in the parable. He names the poor man Lazarus. But we'll see that his naming of Lazarus isn't naming someone specifically. There's a reason why he uses the name Lazarus because of the meaning of the name Lazarus. And we'll look at that here shortly. And so every other criteria would show us is this is a parable, so we should understand it this way. So we, we don't want to understand these details uh, specifically or to take them as um, specific, but that they are laid alongside a specific truth. And these realities that Jesus is, is painting the picture with this parable helps us understand a specific truth about the idea of eternity and what it means to, to find ourselves in heaven with God or apart from him forever in hell. So let's read our passage. If you don't have a Bible, if you're new with us, we welcome you here. There's Bibles in the back of the seats. There's Bibles by the doors. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that as a gift. That's our gift to you. Keep it and read it. And so we're going to be looking at Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Luke 16, 19 through 31. It says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, 
who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in, his, in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also continue in this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so Jesus is saying a lot in this parable. Let's begin by looking at the characters that Jesus is, is showing us here. Jesus is painting a picture of extremes. This parable is meant to show us a picture of extremes, this direct contrast between the rich man and Lazarus. So who is the rich man? Well, we see here that the rich man was extremely wealthy. He was dressed in purple. Purple garments were extremely expensive, because they were dyed with tyrian, uh, tyrian, sorry, purple dye, which was extracted by sea snails on the north shore of, of Israel. And so this was a very uh, laborious and expensive process. Only the rich could afford it, and it was reserved for princes, rulers, nobles, and the extremely wealthy. And in this context, he was clothed with purple, uh, purple and fine linen, and this was his regular garb. So this wasn't even special attire. This is what this rich man wore every day. The most expensive, the most beautiful uh, clothing that you could find. Then we see fine linen. The fine linen here, it was made with expensive Egyptian cotton and was especially soft and white. The process that they would go through to get this linen white, they would, they would mix it with clay and this process was laborious and it would make the, their whites whiter than white. They, they, it was a symbol of, of, of rich, being rich and being above anyone else in society. And so he has this purple and fine linen showing his extreme wealth and his lavish lifestyle. And then on top of that, he feasted sumptuously every day. This means fine dining, every expensive and luxurious thing that you could eat. And he'd not, he not only did that occasionally, he did this every day. This was his normal means of eating and drinking. This would have been the top of the top. You think about our society today, you think about the richest people you can think of, this is who Jesus is trying to um, show them here. And so for the rich, the rich man in this parable, he's the hero of the Pharisees. He represented the, Fer, the Pharisees' thought on what was good and righteous. He was their hero. It was common in, in the, among the Jews and, and even what the Pharisees would have taught at that time um, that if you were wealthy, you, you were blessed by God. That was a symbol of God's blessing. Uh, we see this in Job where the friends were 
constantly asking him what he did wrong to sin because of what was also common among their thought was that if you struggled in this lifetime, that you must have sinned, you must have done something wrong. We see this in multiple places all throughout Scripture. Like I said, you can see this in the book of Job. You can see this with the blind, the blind man in John uh, verse or chapter 9 where that was their immediate question, the disciples, what did this man do to be born blind? He must have sinned. What did his parents do? There was this common thought of sin resulting in hardship. And blessing was, was resulted in, in luxury or financial blessing even. So what they believed and taught in this idea of that riches were a sign of God's blessing would help us understand that they, they were the original prosperity gospel preachers, the Pharisees were, right? If you, in their mindset, if you followed the law, which their version of the law, by the way, they added to it quite a bit, then you would have been blessed by God. You would have found favor with the Lord, and it would have meant that you would be with God forever, right? Not much different than our modern false teachers today. We see this taught very often in our society, in our churches even, that if you're following the Lord, if you're doing what's right before God, that you'll have an easy life, and things will be good, and you'll be blessed. And if you just pray and seek the Lord and have faith that he's going to give you the desires of your heart and blessings, we hear this all throughout our day, and we ourselves find ourselves often believing those truths, much like we would see here in this society. Not much is different. If we go and look at Solomon's word in Ecclesiastes, there's not much new under the sun. What we think and believe today is a different version of this, but it is the same. And this is what the Pharisees were believing at this time. They would have saw this rich man as, yeah, he's the, he's the good one. And Jesus does not mention any fault in the rich man as far as breaking the law or no external or degrading vice. So we can infer that the rich man was a religious and well-respected man in society as well. So not only was he rich and, and had a lot of money, but Jesus would have been painting this picture as a man who was seen as righteous as well, just driving home the point even more that he's in the context of the audience he's speaking to. He's speaking about the Pharisees. He's speaking about the ones who would have followed the Pharisees' teaching and leading and guiding. Now, let's look at the poor man. So there's our rich man character. Now we have the poor man. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus. The, poor, the word for poor here is uh, pitahos. I think is kind of how you say it. I don't know. We'll try my best, right? But it means extremely desolate and poor. So it's not just a guy who was kind of poor, didn't have much, but this is the poorest of the poor. Remember, Jesus is painting a picture of extremes. And he, he names him Lazarus. Not, this is not the brother of Mary and Martha that we know um, from John, where Jesus raised him from the dead. This is not that same Lazarus. But Lazarus in the Greek, it was a translation of the common Hebrew name Eleazar, which means whom God has helped. There's a reason why he names the poor man. It's believed that Jesus gave the poor man this name not because it was referring to a real person, but illustrating the way that one enters heaven. He's making a point with the name Lazarus. This poor man, this desolate man, was named Lazarus, the one who God has helped. And this is a key to the meaning of our passage today. And then it says, The poor man laid at the rich man's gate. 
The poor man was laid at the rich man's gate. Now, the original, original meaning of laid here was more, uh, more rightly translated as thrown. So it wasn't that someone came and gently probably laid him at the gate. It's actually given this connotation that he was so poor and desolate and no one had any means of helping him and no one cared about him. And they would throw him at the rich man's gate. If you think about the rich man, he would have this giant estate and out at the end of it would be these, these big gates. And it was common in this time for the poor to be laid at rich people's gates because there was no welfare or any means of helping the poor at this time. And so people would take them and put them at the rich man's gates in, order that ho- in hopes that they would receive some charity or some help from the rich. But there was no uh, need to do that, and the, the rich people didn't necessarily do that very often. So the, the poor man here, he's a man with no friends. And there was no help for him in this day. And so he was laid at the rich man's gate in hopes that the rich man would take pity on him and show mercy on him. And Jesus is saying something about this situation, which he received no help from the rich man. And he desired to eat what, the scraps from the rich man's table. He said he, in verse 21, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. These scraps were commonly known as, um, well, I'll paint a picture for you. When you would go to a feast like this, there would be stale bread. There was no utensils, no forks, knives, things of that nature. They would eat with their hands. And then they would use this stale bread as basically napkins to wipe away the stuff of their hands, and then they would throw it on the ground, and these dogs would come and eat, eat these scraps. And these dogs were not household pets. In this day and time, dogs were, they were kind of um, wild scavengers, if you will. They were just around. And they were despised by the rich and the wealthy. You know, and a lot of times they would, they would look at people lower than these dogs, especially men like the poor man. And so here, the poor man, he is just desiring to have those scraps of stale bread that was used as napkins for the rich. And these dogs, they, they came and they licked his sores. And this really shows us that the dogs were showing more compassion on the poor man than the rich man did. Dogs often, if you, if you have a dog or if you're around dogs, that's the way they healed themselves, right? If they have a wound, they, would, they lick their wounds. And often if you have a pet and you have a wound, these dogs will come up to you and the way that they would show you care would be to, to lick your wound. A lot of times you have to push them away because it's annoying, right? Um, if you ever had pets or dogs, some dogs just lick you all the time and it's annoying, right? But it's their way of showing care. And so what Jesus is showing here is these dogs, they would come out and they were, they were showing this poor man care, concern, because he had these sores. That's the other thing that we see about the poor man. Not only was he desolate, not only did he have anything, but he was covered in these sores. And, um, sorry, I lost my place here. Yeah, he was covered in these sores. This could have been something... Um, that came from laying there, bed sores type of things. It was a representation of his being desolate, not having anything, not able to move. And see, the rich man never lifted a finger to help. 
This reminds us in this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is making a similar point. In Luke 10, 25 through 37, he condemns the priests and the Levites for this man who's beaten up and left for dead and they walk over him because they're too important. But then you have the Good Samaritan who shows compassion. This is continuing to set up this divide between those who belong to the kingdom of the world versus the kingdom of God. Those in the kingdom of the world are prideful. And they care about themselves. And they care about their own things. And they care about what good it comes from them. Often even their charity, they only do it because there's some self-benefit. But those in the kingdom of God show compassion. And compassion is a marker of those in the kingdom. And he's set up this great divide between the rich man and the poor man. And this poor man lays here with no help, no hope in this life, nothing to his name, no one to show compassion, no one to help him with his physical needs, and he dies. And the rich man dies as well. So now we see we have our rich man and we have our poor man, and now we have death. And this is kind of known as the great reversal, right? Because at death, the poor man finds himself in heaven. Right, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So here, in this life, rich man has everything. Poor man has nothing. Rich man has all kinds of friends, has everything you need. Poor man has no one to even care for him. And then at death, a complete reversal. Now, the poor man has riches beyond Meaning, beyond our thoughts, he's in heaven. He's by Abraham's side, and the, the rich man finds himself in Hades, apart from God. So let's look at this idea of death. The poor man finds himself in heaven. He dies with no burial, with no one, no one caring, no earthly honor. There's no burial, just he dies, and then he was carried. But he, yet he was comforted by God. This idea of Abraham's side, this is the only time we see this here in Scripture, but in the Talmud, which was the, the primary source of religious law at the time, where, where they would have had a lot of their extra laws and everything as well, it referred to this idea of heaven as Abraham's side. So we can rightly understand what Jesus is saying here is this is speaking of heaven. And it would have been an outrage to the Pharisees at this moment, who prided themselves on being descendants of Abraham. This is to them would have been like spitting in their face. What do you mean this poor man, this desolate man, is at Abraham's side and this rich man is not? This, this would have completely flew in the face of what they would have understood. And this illustration of being carried off by the angels was not speaking about his literal body. Remember, we've got to understand this as a parable. So we shouldn't make ideas that when we die, we, we get carried off by angels in this way. Because scripture shows over and over again that when we die, we wake up in heaven. There's no thing like that that we could look to. But his soul was comforted by angels. And that we can, we can see this idea in scripture. Hebrews 1, 13 through 14 gives us this idea when he says, And to which of the angels has it ever been said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet, speaking of Christ? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So for those who are believers, for those who are saints based upon Scripture, it's good for us to think of this idea of the, the angels being those who would serve and 
minister to to uh, those who are in heaven, but not in a way of which we would expect to be carried off in this kind of way. But the idea here is how God comforted the poor man. He's comforting Lazarus, who had no one to care for him, no one to, to show compassion, but yet God does. And this idea of his name Lazarus would have given us an indication that the poor man had a right belief in God. Even though he had nothing in this life, he, he had a relationship with the Lord. He had a repentant heart. He had a desire to know the Lord and God show compassion on him. The rich man, however, he was honored up until death. He even had a proper burial, right? Because we can see this here, where the, the rich man also died and was buried. So the poor man had no one to care for him, but the rich man, even, in, even at burial, would have had this probably lavish funeral, many friends, many mourners. But when he wakes up, when he opens his eyes, he finds himself in Hades. Hades is often used as a parallel to the Old Testament word Sheol, which generally referred to the realm of the dead and regularly contrasted with heaven. Hades literally means a dark, obscure place. In this place, there was wicked spirits. This is where the wicked spirits would go. So we can rightly say that Jesus is referring to this idea of hell as we understand it. See, many in the world around us, even today, would claim to believe in the idea of heaven. If you were to ask any of us in this room, or if you would just go out on the streets asking random people if they believe in the idea of heaven, they would say yes. Who wouldn't want to believe in this idea of a paradise, a life after death, where we get to sit on clouds and play a harp or whatever, you know, the ideas of heaven are. But many question the idea of hell. Many in, in our world would not even believe in it at all. But more, in a more scary sense, those within the church question the idea and the validity of hell too. Many false teachers within the church shy away even from teaching on the idea of hell, seeing as it is too harsh or, and not helpful. And many within the church also try to redefine this idea. Uh, one that comes to mind, a man named Rob Bell. But there's many in the same camp where he even wrote a book trying to redefine this idea of hell, trying to make it something different than what the Bible would teach. But don't believe those things. Jesus right here is confirming the idea of it. He confirms it over and over again. There is an actual reality of a life after death where it's death eternally, apart from God forever in a place called hell. And Jesus, he constantly refers to this, and here he is confirming it. So even though a parable, we don't take every little detail literally, it is laid alongside a spiritual truth. And the truth is, there's a place of heaven where God dwells, and there's a place of hell where we would dwell forever. Jesus talks about this idea again in Luke 13, through 29, because hell is a place of torment, as we would see here, in the story of the rich man. In Luke 13, 22 through 29, it says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Jesus continually confirms this idea of hell. And we should take it very seriously. And this should be divisive to you today, not in a way of to be harsh to you, but a way to wake us up. See, the rich man looks up and sees Lazarus at Abraham's side. He would have been surprised and shocked to be in hell. And the Pharisees would have been shocked at what Jesus is saying here. This should sober us today. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will clare, declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many will wake up in hell surprised to be there. And we need to know that. This isn't speaking of people who would just flippantly think about the ideas of heaven and hell. This, Jesus is speaking to those who would even prophesy in the name of Jesus, who would do mighty works in the name of Jesus, but they weren't doing it on God's terms. They were doing it for their own glory. And he says this clearly in Matthew 7, the one who ends up in the kingdom of heaven are the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. There is a way, there is a narrow door, there is one way, and we should not be so arrogant to think that our way is sufficient but that his is. And I say this to us carefully today, and I urge you to listen carefully today in, in the lessons that we're gonna draw from this passage because I don't want any of us to find ourselves in the place of the rich man. We would, we were, we would wake up surprised to be in hell apart from God. I don't want us to be surprised. I want us to wake up rejoicing in the truth Rejoicing in heaven with God forever. So the first point that we need to draw from this parable is that circumstantial realities give no indication of right standing before God. Your circumstantial realities give no indication of right standing before God. This is important for us to understand. I don't want us to look at our lives or experiences or blessings and make it make an indication that it should not make. Because that's how you end up surprised to be in hell. So we're going to look at some false beliefs I want to warn you against today. There are some false beliefs that Jesus is warning against by what he's saying through the, this idea of the rich man. The first false beliefs that I want to warn you about is the warning about blessings. The warning about blessings. Some of these things aren't going to come up on the screens on purpose because I want you to pay attention and take notes. False beliefs. The first warning is a warning against blessings. See, this was shocking to the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus. We've made that point. He is, char he is characterizing 
about the Pharisees and what they falsely taught. This is a character, this is a character flaw in them. They falsely taught that those who found favor with God were blessed. And what they meant by blessing was primarily shown through a financial blessing, wealth. That's why they were so upset when Jesus warned against money, because they were lovers of money. We should rightly infer that Jesus is illustrating that wealth can be dangerous to the soul. Dangerous to the soul. We can infer this here because it aligns with Jesus' teachings in many other contexts in the scriptures. Luke 16, 13, we've already talked about, but I'll put it in front of you again. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew 19, 23-26, after Jesus has the interaction with the rich man, the rich young ruler, he turns to his disciples and he says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. With God all things are possible. Why did they say, with who could be saved? It wasn't because they were saying that all rich people would go to hell. But he's also hitting at this same idea in their hearts that, well, that represents blessing. Then who could be saved? And he's trying to get them to see as he's trying to get the Pharisees to see that it's with God alone that one is saved. But here's the warning of blessing. Jesus warned them against wealth because it would blind them to their need for repentance. Wealth can rock us to sleep for our need for the Lord. Wealth represents the ability in our own pride to control our lives and live a good life. We often think of false beliefs. If I just had enough, then I could fill in the blank. Or if God loved me, he wouldn't take me through this hardship. Completely going against scripture, by the way. James 1 said we should rejoice in trials because it produces a steadfastness in our faith. Trials are a part of the Christian walk because God cares about two things, his holiness, his glory, and our holiness. And so he would bring trials within our lives to shape us and mold us into the image of his son, Jesus. He's not concerned primarily about your comfort in this life. And so we shouldn't believe that blessing and this life should bring comfort. We should be comforted by God and God alone. A life of blessing and ease does not mean that you're right with God. It could very well be the very thing that leads you to hell. That's why he's warning against this idea. And the Pharisees and many of the Jews for many years and centuries had taught the wrong thing and believed the wrong idea and missed the point. It is the humble who acknowledge and worship God alone. And they are the ones who enter the kingdom. Not spiritual blessing coming through financial wealth. We have to be careful and we ourselves must be warned against this false belief. We can all fall into it. What do our prayers look like? When you get into the word and when you seek the Lord and when you are praying, are you praying for his glory 
Are you rejoicing in the Lord always as it tells us to? Are you considering the trials in your life joyful because of what God is producing? Or are you constantly concerned with the troubles in your life and the lack of things that you have and constantly asking him to give you more? That will expose your heart to what you worship. Be careful. He is warning against financial wealth and warning against this idea of blessing because it will rock us to sleep and we won't see our need for a savior. We have to be careful. Number two, the second false belief that Jesus is trying to warn against here in this parable is a warning against works, religion, and trusted in heritage. So the Pharisees believe that their Abrahamic ancestry guaranteed their inheritance into heaven. This is why this is outrageous to them. This idea of this rich man who, who was a, a Jew and did everything in, in the way that they thought was right ends up in hell. The Pharisees believed and taught that if you kept the rules of the law, which they had added to, so their version of it, then God would bless you and you would find favor with God. We cannot trust in these types of things. They completely missed the point of the law. The law was to show one's need for God, leading to repentance, that you can't be good on your own. Paul, who was a Pharisee, explains it clearly here in Philippians 3, 2 through 8. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, or the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Their keeping of the law was not out of repentance and worship. It was a self-righteous version that they had added rules to in order to seem righteous. And Paul is warning here, just as Jesus is trying to warn, don't put your hope in those things. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the inheritance. But he counted those things loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ our Lord. And he warns, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. Who are the dogs? Who are the evildoers? Those are false teachers that that Paul is talking about. Just as Jesus is warning against the Pharisees' teaching right here. Listen, it doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter about your church membership, your baptism, your experience with God, your feelings, your allegiances. None of that stuff matters if it's apart from loving Christ, knowing the Lord as Lord, repenting and believing Him as Lord. It's good to be in a good church. And as we talked about the past three weeks, but if we're not teaching the word of God, it means nothing. And if we're not submitting to the word of God, it means nothing. If we're not worshiping God on his terms, it means nothing. 
Many of us can come into this room week in and week out, or many other churches week in and week out, claiming to worship the Lord. But you may find yourself waking up in hell if it's not on God's terms. Be warned today. Do not trust in your inheritance or who you think you are. Put no trust in those things. Warning number three is against, the, against pride. He's warning the Pharisees against pride, and we should take the same warning. The Pharisees looked down at the poor and downtrodden. They had a lot of religious pride. They would have seen him as lower than dogs. There's a reason why the rich man had no compassion. It would not have been seen as evil for him not to show compassion on this man. Actually, it would have been seen as right. And no need for him to do so. But Lazarus represented the outcast. And it was the outcasts who were coming to Jesus and receiving salvation all throughout Jesus' ministry. Not because they were outcasts, but because they recognized their need for salvation. The poor man had nothing to point to. He sought the Lord, and he was humble. The heart of humility and worship of God is what saves. Matthew 5, 2-4 says it this way. And he opened his mouth and taught them, speaking of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Don't misunderstand this parable today and don't misunderstand what I'm telling you. I'm not trying to give you a gospel of prosperity or of poverty. Neither, neither side guarantees your inheritance into heaven. Being poor doesn't get you into heaven, nor does being rich. But the one thing that the poor in spirit have are those who understand and recognize their sin and their need for God's salvation. That is what saves. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So if the Lord has blessed you with riches today, praise God, steward it for his kingdom and his glory but don't see that as your salvation, but see your need for Christ. And if you come here and you're desolate and poor and you're struggling, you don't get any extra favor from God because of that either. But turn to the comfort of God and repent and believe in Jesus. For those are the ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven. Be warned about these false beliefs. The second truth that Jesus is telling us here, and lesson that we can draw, is that repentance must happen in this life. Eternity is permanent. Repentance must happen in this life. Eternity is permanent. So our circumstantial realities give no indication of the right standing before God, and we must repent in this life. See, there was no mercy for those who are in hell. We look here and we see as he goes on and, and as he finds himself in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, 
and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The rich man had what he needed in this life to know God. The rich man was once prominent, but he has become the beggar. And you notice he didn't even ask Abraham to take him to heaven. That's an important point for us to see here. He just wanted relief from the agony of hell. See, lost spirits know that their sufferings will have no end, and they do not repent in the afterlife no more than they did in this life. Showing the reality of pride. The rich man in this story was not confused that he was in hell. He just wanted relief. And he still had no desire to be in the holy place. He knew that there was no restoration for those who would sink down into hell. And we need to understand that to be true, the, the very means of salvation comes from God alone. It comes from seeing God rightly, and it comes from repentance. The circumstantial reality of hell doesn't cause one to want to repent either. There is no such thing as scaring you into heaven. That's not my goal today. That's not Christ's goal. But that you would see the realities and want God. And that you would pray for God to open your eyes to it, because he has to. For those who find themselves in hell, they won't want God any more there than they did here. They just won't want the consequences of their circumstance. Abraham reminds the rich man of the consequences of his choice. He had no opportunity to repent any longer. Now he had to live with his lack of repentance and worship apart from God forever. And then Abraham reminds the rich man of the permanency of his eternal reality. There's this great chasm. There's no getting here and there's no one coming from here to get to you. There's a reality after death. Two roads. And I want to hit against that belief in this life because in this life, many of us believe there's many different ways. That's just not true. Speaking back to the reality of two kingdoms, that's reality is right now. You're either part of the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God and there's only one way to be a part of the kingdom of God and that's through Christ alone. There's many ways to be a part of the kingdom of the world. Do nothing. Because we're all born sinful. And without the sin being atoned for, that's the kingdom that you find yourself in. And the road of that kingdom is hell. So do nothing. Follow your own thoughts. Seek every which way in this life to find comfort and hope. Your destination remains the same. But for those who repent and believe in Christ as Lord, they find themselves like the poor man, being comforted by God in heaven. And there will be no mercy at this point. I hope this wakes us up. I have so many more things to say, and I have so little time, so I cannot say them. But I hope that this point lands on you. My prayer is that you would see this. And that the Lord would be stirring a conviction in your heart to want to know him. And this leads us to our last and final point. 
Scripture alone is sufficient for one to come to true saving faith. Scripture alone is sufficient for one to come to true saving faith. We see this dialogue of the rich man and Abraham at the end here. He said, then I beg you, Father, send him, speaking of Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This rich man shows his lack of belief in the word of God, which is what got him there in the first place. And he's even blaming Abraham a little bit in his tone, saying that it wasn't sufficient. We didn't know. We didn't understand these realities. Scripture isn't enough. God didn't make it clear enough. But they'll believe if someone comes from the dead, a witness can tell them what heaven's like, can share about these realities, then they'll believe, then that'll be enough. And Jesus is trying to tell through this parable, no, it won't. Because Scripture is sufficient. God has painstakingly through the Holy Spirit, over time, written through men, Moses and the prophets, to tell you exactly what it means to know God and how to repent. And you chose not to. And you won't believe even if someone comes from the dead. So I want us to do a quick study here. Is Abraham telling the truth in this parable? Is Jesus telling the truth? Was it sufficient? Well, let's look at what the Old Testament taught. We're just gonna look through a few passages and see, could we see through the Old Testament alone what it means to be saved? Well, the first thing that the Old Testament teaches is God is holy. Isaiah 5, 15 through 16. Isaiah says, Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. So we can gather from the Old Testament, many other places, it's just one, that God made himself known to be holy. The second thing that the Old Testament shows us is we were created for his glory. We can find that in the Old Testament clearly. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So we can see those two things clearly in the Old Testament, that God is holy and we were created for his glory. The third thing we see in the Old Testament is that we are sinners and must repent. Ezekiel 18, 30-32. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, declares the Lord, the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Repent. So we see that clearly. We are sinners and we must repent. The fourth thing we see in the Old Testament, God forgives the repentant sinner through his grace. Exodus 34, six through seven, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That seems pretty clear, doesn't it? God forgives the repentant sinner through his grace. The fifth thing that we see, salvation comes through faith alone. Genesis 15, five through seven, or five through six. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and, it counted it in, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Speaking of Abraham. And Paul points to this in Romans 2, the same idea. That it was by faith alone that Abraham believed and it was counted him as righteousness, not by law. The law wasn't even given yet. Number six, God's justice was satisfied by transferring his judgment to a substitute. This is in the Old Testament as well. And the point of the law, Leviticus 1, 3 through 4. If his, off, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for, for him to make atonement for him. So we see atonement for sin, a substitutionary atonement in the Old Testament. And last but not least, number seven, a Messiah would come to fulfill the law and redeem them from their sins. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Scripture's sufficient. The Old Testament was sufficient. And the New Testament shows how Christ is the fulfillment of the law. So just as the rich man had no excuse, neither do we. We have less of one because we have all of Scripture in its fullness. And we've seen Christ. John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus spoke of that narrow gate and the way, this is what he was saying. Salvation is in Christ alone. And I want to reiterate this point that Abraham made in verse 31. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And in this course of Jesus' ministry, they had saw the centurion's son raised from the dead in Luke 7. They would see Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, raised. And they, in all the Gospels, would see Christ resurrected. And they didn't believe. And many of us, we have this. We have this record. And we don't believe in that either. Jesus is warning us in this passage, and I'm warning us today. I'm imploring. Listen. Salvation comes through humility and the belief that we need a Savior, and through Christ alone. Acts 4, 11 through 12. says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, speaking of Israel, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
And I exhort you today as we close, repent and trust in Christ as Lord so that you may be saved. Let's pray. Father God, I, I pray this morning as a humble servant who needs this as much as anyone listening. There are many things that we would put our hope in, that we would be distracted by, that we would battle our flesh and the spiritual forces that are in this world that would corrupt our minds and make us think otherwise. But God, help us to see clearly today. Let your spirit move in each of our hearts to convict us that salvation is in you and you alone. And for those who are in you, God, let this strengthen us. And for those who are here today who have no relationship with you, God, let them repent and trust in you so that they would not wake up one day without hope in hell. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.